Welcome to the Financial Coaches Network, a show to help financial coaches build and grow successful coaching businesses by focusing on the three pillars, getting clients, working with clients, and running the business. I'm Garrett Fulbin. Over the first four years as a coach, I grew a successful financial coaching business to over 80K in annual revenue. And I'm Joshua Escalante Troche. As a tenured professor of entrepreneurship and a consultant, during the past two decades, I've helped more than a thousand entrepreneurs start and grow their businesses. So get that pen and paper ready or open up the notes app on your phone. It's time to build your ideal financial coaching business. All right, so let's dive in. Where would you like to start? All right. So let's start with, um, since you are the expert on coaching. Oh, dear God. I, why don't we start oh, dear with, God. Okay. <laughs> why don't we start with a, a working definition of coaching with everyone understanding that if they disagree with you, too damn bad, because there is no actual definition. So we're just going to go with whatever you say, and that's what we're going to use as our working definition for this. I know. It, it was funny. I was looking up multiple so. definitions. I have my laptop over here now that I'm not on my laptop anymore. Um, and it was really interesting seeing the multiple definitions of coaching um, that both I had written. I was going to pull it up to uh, figure out kind of like what I had written as my definition uh, and then what other people right. had written as well. And I think, like you said, there is no single definition of it. The way that I used to describe it is what it wasn't. So I would say what financial right. coaching isn't is I'm not an investment advisor. I don't, uh, I don't manage your investments. We don't do any comprehensive planning. I don't sell any products or insurance. What I do as a coach is I really help people focus on the day-to-day -day management of their money to start, figure out what's coming in, what's going out, where's it going, help them align their money with their priorities, goals, and values, and hopefully help them with their habits and behaviors so that it's not just from the day-to-day, -day, but be able to extend that lens out and be able to get them so that they can eventually know how to fish. Right. Rather than or teaching them how to fish rather than just like giving them a fish. Yeah. So that's a very long, convoluted way of putting it. I'm sure I could have um, come up with a much more succinct version. But I also do that in part because when we describe it to clients or I can say when I describe it to clients, I always do it a little bit differently. And so I think mm -hmm. in that I always describe it a bit different. Different people have different different definitions for a financial coach versus a money coach. Um, Jeremy just asked a good question, you know, so who should be the authority on defining what financial coaching is? Um, should there be an authority on what financial coaching is? You know, does that help from a liability standpoint? I'm kind of curious as to your thoughts, like, should there be a definition? So uh, ultimately, there is going to be a definition. Uh, and that is going to be defined by the only people that actually make definitions for things like that, and that is governance. And th there is going to be a regulatory framework that will at some point come up in, with regard to financial coaching. What that regulatory framework work looks like, um, it could be anywhere from everyone who's on this call right now is out of business unless they're a registered investment advisor, have some other licenses, to creating a new regulatory definition to uh with with it with a new license for financial coaching um but the governments the governments will step in at some point and do something and whether that is something that is friendly 
to the financial coaching world or harmful for the financial coaching world, part of that is going to depend on how uh, financial coaches, and I'm going to include myself in that because I do do a little bit of, of coaching, how we sort of act through through this period of the wild, wild west. Yeah. And it, it is the wild, wild west. Uh, but when you watch movies of wild, wild west, you kind of get a romanticized version of it because most people die from being shot in the back or dysentery. Right. If you play Oregon Trail. So. Right. Right. Yeah. But that's a, you know, it's a really good point. And it's stark to say, you know, everyone who's on this call might be regulated out of a job, but it's a very real possibility. I mean, I think one thing that strikes me is that the, you know, we both live in California and I went and got my hair cut a few days ago. And I believe that the woman who cut my hair has to get 500 or a thousand hours of training needs to have, like has a certification mm -hmm. that she needs in order to cut hair. Um, and yes. there is no regulation for financial coaches uh, when we deal with people's money. Right. So it is one of those, it's kind of interesting to think about it. Not that regulation inherently means that you get better, Co Better. coaches right. right but that it it's it kind of makes it seem like it is inevitable if my the person woman who cuts my hair has to is regulated then it's like how are we not yeah. right yeah and so it is a matter of time and you know it, we the more that we talk about this the more likely it is that that regulation is not going to be you're all out of business right right yeah. and that's I mean, a big reason why I wanted to talk to you about this and put it live in the group is because it does, it, I'm not going to say it's up to us, but we play a huge part in whether it is friendly, like you said, mm -hmm. or whether it's incredibly onerous. Yeah. So, so having these conversations and understanding what we can and cannot do is important for us individually and collectively as a group. I mean, I know Kelsa Dickey's group and mine combined, there is some overlap, but she has about 3,000 people mm -hmm. in her group. I have 2,000 people in this group who are either actively coaching, looking to become coaches. Let's just assume there are 4,000 unique people over the past couple of years. Like, that's a lot, honestly, to just kind of be coming mm -hmm. out of the woodwork. And so with that many new people coming into the field, it makes it even more important, I think, to be having these conversations. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So if you want to go on to the next point, what I'm going to do is actually just take my phone, walk over, plug it in. Uh, just to make sure that we don't run out of juice. So I'll let you go and just everyone else enjoy the delightful background of the outdoor kitchen behind me. Sounds great. Uh, okay, so so the next thing is kind of talking about the legal framework or lack thereof of coaching. And we've kind of already addressed that, so we'll go through this pretty quickly. But interestingly, the legal framework of coaching really aligns with your what you thought was a bad definition of coaching in that you said, this is what it's not, which really is the legal framework of coaching right now. It's not, this is what coaching is, and this yeah. is what your lane is. It's literally, here's where you've gone off the cliff, and over here is where you've gone off the cliff, and over here is where you've gone off the cliff, and it's nowhere in a single place. Yeah. It's in 15 different places. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the legal framework, which, um, to be honest with you, from a practice management standpoint, does make it more difficult to be a coach because you don't have one set of laws that you have to deal with or two or three sets of laws, but you have to worry about not just the laws that are obvious of where coaching might 
bleed into these other areas, but all the potential areas that you might not even be aware of. And the example that I give with this with regards to, you probably don't realize how often you break the law, is it is illegal to transport a lobster in the trunk of your car in most states in New England. And very few people know that. (laughs) So there's a lot of laws that people don't realize. Right, right. And uh, and that aren't enforced. Uh, and so, yeah, and some of them are enforced, some of them are not. Some of them are not enforced for a while until the government starts getting complaints, and then all of a sudden they get really enforced really heavily. Right. Um, and so there's this sort of liability, this sort of gray shadow of liability that um, we all have in our lives, but in financial coaching, we have to sort of the potential for it. So yeah, it's uh, really what that was just to catch you up. I, I think that other people may have hear, heard it already, so I'm not going to go through it all again. But just the idea that we we want to be cognizant of the fact and aware of the fact that there are these sort of minds sitting out there legal-wise that we may not even understand. Okay, so, um, and I think from there, we can start talking about where is it, where do we know that coaching bleeds into regulatory regulated areas that could create heightened liability? Um, and so, uh, we'll start with the practice of law, uh, no matter what state that you're in, it is illegal to hold yourself out as an attorney with, uh, and, or, and give legal advice and holding yourself as an attorney does not say putting up law firm. It literally is. If you are giving legal advice under the context of being an advisor, which as a coach, you're always under the context of being an advisor. Um, you have potential liability related to that, and that liability is not just civil liability. When I say civil liability, that means clients and their families suing you. Uh, but there are fines and jail time associated with those things. Uh, it, it is a jailable offense to give someone legal advice when you're not a, an attorney uh, in almost every state, uh, but it's illegal in all states. Um, and so as we look at this idea, when can financial coaching bleed over into this idea of legal advice? And I'm going to go through things that are common of what financial coaches might talk about, and then we can talk about how that could potentially cause problems. Cool. And I'm seeing on your face, are we having technology issues? Or are we good? Uh, it looks good from my standpoint. Um, Sounds good. Something on my face. Something um, that doesn't look good on my face, Josh. That's a really harsh way. <laughs> no, you look, you look, you you look beautiful, man. You just you just looked a little like, hmm, what's going on there? Yeah, I think I'm just gonna move to put myself closer to the actual plug, and I'm just gonna hold this phone. But I promise, that's all that's gonna happen. I'm not gonna screw it up anymore. To be than still. Me. Yep. So we'll be good. <laughs> all right. Uh, and so let's let's talk about you have a client, and the client four or five years ago uh, went through a divorce. Uh, it's a new client comes on board, and they've got a um, a life insurance policy. Their spouse, their ex spouse, is named as the beneficiary of the life insurance policy, and it is a very expensive whole life insurance policy. Typical advice that would commonly be given amongst people within the financial coaching world would be to uh, kill that whole life policy and get a, a term life insurance policy with the idea of you buy term and invest the difference type thing. 
Uh, and especially if when you looked at it, it was an expensive whole life insurance policy. The challenge comes in is that whole life insurance policy was highly likely to be a part of the divorce agreement. And while the client doesn't remember getting it as part of the divorce agreement, they just knew they had to get it and they had to keep paying it. You have kind of stepped in a pretty dangerous area by actually telling a client to violate a legal document that was dictated by a judge and enforced by the courts. Mm. Uh, because most of the time, if the attorney is good at their job, that the court will actually say it has to be a whole life insurance policy so that you don't have to worry about, well, after 20 years, the life insurance ends. And as a result, the person no longer has the protection that the courts originally put. Because um, the idea of this is oftentimes this is not about the person dying and giving up and the person loses their uh, um, their support payments. Sometimes this is about, this was part of the division of assets and the person said, well, I don't want to split my 401k because I don't want to have my retirement account go down. So instead of giving you a million dollars in the 401k, I'll buy a $5 million life insurance policy so that whenever I do die, you end up with $5 million. And so the, these life insurance policies could be done for all sorts of different reasons, not the typical reasons that you might think about. Um, another example of this would be the practice of a state law. With regards to a state law, and I know I've said this three times, the titling and the beneficiaries become a potential challenge. Uh, your titling of an account and your beneficiary designations on an account will actually override the trust documents and the will and, or your beneficiaries and you give advice related to that. What honestly ends up happening is you override what the attorney did with the will and the estate because you changed from this bank to an to an online bank trying to get the client to get a 2% savings rate, which of course opens up all sorts of potential problems. Right. So there's a lot to think about. So in this case saying um, right. leave, you're talking about insurance, you may have enough information to think that you're dangerous, but then thinking you're dangerous is actually pretty dangerous, right? Like, so do you yeah, suggest that people that just honestly think don't look like anything become problems? Okay, that makes sense. Cool. I'm getting closer to the other Wi-Fi. This is the game we live, the game we play. <laughs> so at this point. Does anyone have any questions on where we are? We've gotten so far. We can see. Just put them in the comments. Um, Lillian said that the audio is still pretty good for her. I know that we're going a bit in and out, but um, seems like it's still good for them. So as comments come in, um, I can see them come in. So I can also make sure and note that so that. Um, you can keep going, and then if people do ask questions, I can make sure to log them and then bring them up and kind of interject as they come up. Does that work for you? Okay. Awesome. So outside, so legal liability need to make sure that we stay within our lane because practicing law, obviously with a law degree, is a problem, or without being a lawyer. Um, 
what are some other things that we need to be on the lookout for? What would be kind of the next thing in the best sequence be? The uh, next thing in the sequence for the potential liability uh, is going to be looking at offering of tax advice. I think that's what the question you asked was, correct? That's correct, yep. So cool. as we look at the idea of tax advice, uh, the punishments here are mostly gonna be liability. And the reason why is because there is no law law that says that you have to be a CPA or anything else to give tax advice. There are certain laws around preparing and filing documents that you file. Uh, there are also laws related to representing people in front of the tax court, but there's no actual law related to tax advice. So generally what we're going to be looking at with regards to tax advice is you give some advice, they pay a bunch of extra money in taxes, again, because of these other elements of the tax law that you may not be aware of. And as a result, they come after you for giving the improper tax advice. Now, I will throw out one potential problem, and that is when we see uh, tax advice, if the advice that you gave was illegal, so you facilitated them uh, evading taxes, not avoiding taxes, which is perfectly illegal, but evading taxes, you could then be put, to, put in jail along with your client because of the evasion of taxes. Uh, because CPAs, this happens all the time. There are CPAs that actually go to jail because they gave advice and it was tax evasion. Okay, so we definitely don't want to be doing that. Uh, yeah, that, that would generally be a bad thing. So what are some common examples of things that might not, because I feel like evasion is pretty severe. Are there any instances that you know of, maybe not know of, but instances where coaches can give advice that does fall into that evasion category, or is it more coaches giving advice that might fall into just not good advice right so more avoidant like trying to help them uh, trying to give good tax advice from a good place or at least like give some advice but it not being good advice yeah and so as we look at this with regards to taxes uh the tax code is massive and the, the way the tax code is written is you are allowed to do this however here are some exceptions, and all the exceptions reference other parts of the tax code. Then you move to the, that part of the tax code, and you read that, and there are exceptions to the exception that we just looked at, which reference other parts of the tax code, and it kind of daisy chains along these lines. So just because something is allowed and someone else has done it in the past does not mean that other people can do it, because what is allowed and what is not allowed is based ex extraordinarily on the specific facts and circumstances of the individual case. And so an example of this might be whether or not um, a particular type of loan interest was tax deductible. Right? And as we look at this idea, if you don't have a, a good understanding and have the knowledge of how you go to, from this place to this place to this place to this place within the tax code, 
you may be giving advice that yes, you can totally deduct this on your taxes and the person does it and gets hit with an audit because of it and, and loses simply because while in most circumstances, it is totally tax deductible. In this client's exact circumstances, it's not. When we talk about the tax code being really complicated and, and large, yeah. the IRS in a report to Congress said in their official report, the tax code is so long, we don't even know how many pages it is. Cool. <laughs> yeah, so that's fun. Uh, you and I have very different ideas of what fun means, but yes, go on. <laughs> uh, and so as we look at this idea, uh, that could be one area where we might fall into problems. Another area where we might fall into problems is I'm going to give you a scenario and you tell me what you would advise a client, assuming that you're not going to give the good advice of go talk to a CPA. All right. So just guess at what you think the answer would be. Okay. Just get ready to laugh at me. So go. Yeah. So, a uh, client buys a piano and the piano, uh, they get it uh, tuned because it's out of tune. It doesn't sound quite right. The person comes in, opens up the piano. It's a big grand piano and they're tuning it up. And while they're tuning it up, they find a bag of money stuffed into the piano. What should they do? Oh my God, I would say go to Disneyland. <laughs> So, and that's the normal advice, right? Oh, congratulations, this is wonderful. You found a big bag of money, except they should have declared that as income on their income taxes. Hmm. It, it, that is income, it is taxable income, and therefore they have to declare it. Now, as we look at this idea, why did I give that weirdly specific example? Because that is actually a tax court case. That exact fact pattern happened. Someone did it, didn't declare it, and it ended up uh, causing them a legal problem. Well, yeah. Okay. So the advice he. I'm not sure what else we can say about that other than the IRS is kind of funky. Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> and it's sad that they didn't probably get to go to Disney. In terms of this advice, so thinking of like legal advice. And I know that um, kind of what I'm getting here is legal advice, tax advice. Do you just have to say in almost every instance in order just to cover your ass, say, look, I, I have partners who I work with, and this is something that I could try and answer, but also from a liability standpoint, like I need to cover myself and they'll be able to give you a much more intricate, exact and appropriate answer. Yeah, I think that what the important thing here is to make sure that, that you have a healthy understanding of where all these potential minds are, not what all the minds are, but you're kind of moving into an area that could be potential liability. And as a result, it's about having a group of other professionals who are CPAs, who are lawyers. And when you know you're even coming close to any of these things, that you wrote those people in and have them involved. Uh, when I work with clients, I work very closely with their CPAs. I do tax planning. I've had quite a bit of experience with it. When I say experience with it, when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act came out, I spent that winter reading all 1,460 pages of it. 
So I'm, I'm well versed in it. However, I do not file taxes on behalf of clients and we will plan forward, but that planning forward is always in conjunction with their CPA who is going to be giving the actual tax filing advice because of the fact that that's where my lane is and that's where I want to stay. And so the idea of having uh, strategic alliances, which we'll talk about in a future episode with other professionals is really, really important because it allows you to draw on that expertise to bring in the skills you need to solve the client's problems while not putting you at potential risk. I can speak for myself. Uh, so maybe some other coaches have felt this, that when you are working with clients, um, sometimes it can seem like, well, crap, I'll need to then potentially refer out to like four different types of professionals. And that if I keep saying, I can't talk about this, you need to talk to someone else, you know, oh, I can't talk about this, you need to talk to someone else. Does it then, you know, frustrate the client? Is it then going to cost the client a bunch of money? I think there are, how should I say it? I have felt in the past sometimes like, oh my gosh, I just have to refer out for a bunch of stuff. And it was uncomfortable in the beginning, honestly, to feel like I had to say, oh, look, I can't do this. Um, but that's something I got over. But it, it was something that definitely came up of like, okay, to say like, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. I was almost like taking on what I thought the frustration of the client might be for the fact that they would have to spend money on someone else and that I wouldn't be able to be the person to be able to answer that particular question. Yeah, and it's really important to have an understanding of what you do have or you should be answering and not answering because I do that all the time in my practice as well. I do not answer every question that clients give because my job isn't to answer every question. My job is to solve the client's problem, which may be that person's going to answer it because that's their role. Yep. And, and so boundaries, I think, is very important in understanding that the value that you can provide within the boundaries of financial coaching and getting very clear and comfortable in that and then also being very clear and comfortable in what, again, is outside your lane and and then having those referral partners, those strategic alliances, as you said, and being able to be confident in them. Uh, and so that it is very much not an apologizing for not being able to answer those questions, but saying that just is outside of my lane. But I know some incredibly intelligent, supportive people who will be able to help you with this much better than I could. And so like, in order to best serve you, what right. serving you best actually looks like. No. And I think that one of the ways that might help coaches in their understanding of how that, uh, how they should think about themselves in interacting with clients is kind of think of yourself like a waiter or a waitress. When you go to a restaurant and it's a nice restaurant and you sit down in front of the waiter or waitress and you order a meal and you say, hey, I'd like to know uh, what comes in this particular dish it, it, it does this dish have any nuts in it if the waiter or waitress says um, there's no ingredient on there that i that is standard but i can go find out if any of the sauces or anything else i'll go ask the kitchen no one gets mad at the waiter or waitress that they go ask the chef in the kitchen for is there nuts in any of the sauces that you prepared so it we should look at ourselves in the same way in that 
if a client asks us a question that is outside of our bounds, the client isn't going to be mad that you say, here is the way you get the answer. You go to this other person um, because that's normal. We, we do that in restaurants. We do that with our doctors. You go to your doctor and they refer you to an ear, nose and throat specialist because that's what doctors do. A good point, and I, it's helpful for me to have those kinds of examples, just of ways to think about it. That it's like, oh, right, of course. In other areas, it's not. I don't make a big deal out of it, but sometimes when it's what I do, you know, I'm like, oh, but the clients must think a certain way, or it's definitely different when it deals with us. So having, or when it deals with ourselves. So having those specific examples to kind of take it outside of just us is is really helpful. Really, so thank you for that. So, and I think it's important that we, we, we don't have this philosophy that we have to be God. And it's, it's strange, but we almost kind of feel that way, especially when we're young in a profession, when we're first entering a profession, uh, that if we show any weakness, any lack of knowledge, any lack of omniscience, well, therefore we are worthless. And that's, we don't expect that of anyone else. We don't see that in anything else, but we kind of do that to ourselves. Yeah. Um, the next one that's on our list is insurance advice. And the punishments here vary state by state. And so the example that I like to give here is that you have a client, they have an insurance policy, and they ask you for advice related to the insurance policy. And you give advice. Now, notice how vague I made that example. Yeah. Um, and that's because in certain states, it is illegal across the board to give insurance advice, life insurance advice, unless you are a licensed life insurance agent. Hmm. Any type of advice. Wow. That's pretty clear. So obviously there's no real answers here because we're really going and uh, going back and forth with regards to the audio in my ear right now. So I'm getting a little confused, my apologies. Um, but as we look at the idea of offering insurance, the, um, you really have to understand the laws of your state because it's gonna be different for each state that you're in. Okay, so um, are there any particular instances that you feel like coaches sometimes give insurance advice with i don't know if it's not thinking that it's insurance advice or maybe even that it's like so small you know quote unquote that it, it are there any particular instances that we should just be aware of in noticing where we might do that or is it just across the board um to say you know i just sometimes i've found it helpful to be able to give people something to like think about some of the most common instances or ways in which they may be falling into that trap without even thinking of it. I think with regard to insurance, uh, that really depends on the state that you're in. So if you're in a state where it is illegal to give any advice related to insurance, unless you're a licensed insurance agent and a licensed insurance agent doesn't mean you have to sell insurance. Those states oftentimes have the license where it doesn't mean that you're actually selling any insurance at all. You're just giving advice on it. 
but we want to make sure that if you're in one of those states that you realize that and you just stay away from life insurance advice. Uh, on the other hand, if you're in a state where it doesn't have those types of things, then it's less about giving the insurance advice and thinking about how that insurance advice could impact other aspects, such as a state law or family uh, law, or could cause a problem because the life insurance is inside of a trust and it's a specifically a irrevocable life insurance trust. And so that could cause a huge tax uh, explosion simply because that's a problem that you switched it from a whole life to a term policy. Um, and so those types of things, just understanding that there are implications for switching from one life insurance policy to another is problematic. There was a question from Lillian in the group, which was, how does that work with regards to a coach being in one state and a client being in another state, since a lot of us coach virtually, right? Another layer of this equation. Yep. So then it's a matter of what exactly does the state law of the client's state say? Because if the client state says that regardless of where the advice is given, if you are giving advice to one of our citizens, our laws will apply, uh, you're going to have a problem. Gotcha. Okay, so it's the state of the client that is ultimately going to matter, is what it? Oh, no, it's both, both states. states. You have to worry about your state and the client state because... It's whatever, the, it's whatever the state laws specifically say, and some state laws will try and reach across state boundaries. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Good question, Lillian. I thought of that. And yeah, another layer of then complexity then, you know, their state's laws, but the state laws of your clients. So I'm, did you have another question from the group? Nope, we're all good to move forward. Thanks for checking. So, um, I will throw out another one from uh, Christine K. She had sent me a, a message specifically, and it asked me to take a look at a video that she had posted and said, can you talk about this video in the Facebook Live? And the, her video was about student uh, loan and getting student loan advice. And it was talking about uh, all of the issues with not paying off enough interest and the loan can actually grow in value and you could actually end up owing more 10 years down the road than you originally owed at the beginning. And so the question here is what type of liability, what type of problems can we create here? So there's not going to be any specific laws or specific uh, issues related to that. At least there's not at this time that I'm aware of. But you always open yourself up to potential civil liability. And amongst financial advisors who deal with a student loan specifically, there's this joke that we kind of say, which is if you give the, if you're on the phone with a client and you give the advice to refinance the student loans and you hang up, your next phone call you should make is to your errors and emissions insurance, your professional liability insurance uh, carrier, because you just opened yourself up to a huge problem. <laughs> Got it. Um, so, and the reason why is because student, the federal student loan system is incredibly complex. There are a ton of different repayment options and there are a ton of government programs that are 
you've just made it so that they can't take advantage of this program or they can't have this other benefit. And federal student loans, while they're not cheap, they have enormous flexibility and, and capabilities. And so an example of this, I have a client who's an attorney and this attorney has almost half a million dollars in student loan debt. A portion of that student loan debt is private student loan debt and a portion of it is federal student loan debt. And the plan that we have is to make absolutely minimum payments on those loans for the next 25 years. Well, next 15 years. And the reason why is because at that point, based on the program that they're in and, and doing everything the way that we need to do it, all of that student loan that's left is going to disappear. In the case of the client, it's about $200,000 that's going to be forgiven. I don't care how low you refinance the interest rate. Financially, you are not going to do better than eliminating $200,000 worth of debt. By not uh, that being said, so the tax time is going to be taxed in the year that it's for. So we also have to be able to deal with those taxes. Right. So uh, it seems like it's getting a little slow again on your end. So let me just see if people can hear me. If you can hear me, Garrett Philbin, just let me know. Uh, and to kind of finish up what Josh had said, because it got a little choppy, was that having that plan to pay the minimum payments means then that his client would have, as I heard it, that about $200,000 forgiven, but that that creates a taxable event where in the year that that money is forgiven, mm -hmm. then he would have to pay taxes on that specific amount in that year. Is that correct, Josh? This person would have $200,000 forgiven but that that would create a taxable event in that year. So we'd have to pay taxes on the amount that was forgiven in the year that that occurs. Is that correct? Yeah. Correct. Okay, cool. So then from there, um, I don't think anyone got what you said after that. So if you don't mind just repeating that, that's great. Sure. So the, the issue becomes that is a huge, basically financial benefit that's coming for my client in 15 years. When that happens, uh, if the plan, if someone else had given the advice that they should pay it down as quickly as possible or refinance, most likely the cost of that is going to be a, maybe $100,000, $150,000 when we take everything into consideration of money outside of the client's pocket. And generally, no matter how good of a relationship you have with your client, if they figure out that you cost them $100,000 then they could probably sue yeah. you, or at least they're going to try. Yeah. And it's not to say that your advice was absolutely horrible advice and you didn't know what you're doing and everything else, but it was not the optimal advice simply because of not uh, understanding all the intricacies of the programs. Right. Yeah. So I'm sure some coaches are feeling like, what the hell can we even talk about? At this point? <laughs> <laughs> and and, and I, I completely agree with that sentiment uh, because keep in mind, like that client that has the $400,000 worth of student loan debt, there are, there is a financial planning firm that specializes 
in student loan debt and that's all they do. And so guess what I do? I consult with them and pay money to make sure that I am not stepping in anything that I uh, potentially have a have an issue with. Um, and so it, it is it is frustrating. It is challenging. Uh, and it's not a matter of I'm saying you can't talk about anything, but it's important that you understand when you are moving toward those potential liabilities. And of course, you want to make your own decisions, but also get good advice if you think that there's a potential big liability out there. And when I say good advice, I mean from an actual attorney who can give you legal advice. Lillian has another good question. What role does documentation play in minimizing potential liability? So documentation is extremely helpful in minimizing liability, assuming that the documentation is showing that you did good work. And so documentation can work against you. Um, now, of course, when you're talking about licensed financial advisors like myself, documentation is required specifically because the SEC, if you do do something wrong, wants to have that documentation trail to go after you with it. Yeah. But there's not such a thing for financial coaching. So yeah, does, is there a, a helpful point in like, if we, cause you know, we think that we have done, I imagine we would keep documentation because we think we've done it right. Right. And the whole point of this is there's just so much where you don't know that you didn't do it right. <laughs> yeah. So air consistently on the side of caution to refer out or have strategic partners because so yeah i'm trying to think of like beyond lillian's question which is yeah kind of what we brought up earlier like what do you then talk about in a way that doesn't expose you to liability i guess mm-hmm. well, you know that could be an so, question. it is easier to talk about what you don't talk about right yeah so we are going to we will get to that as we move into the exemption and we start looking at actual specific things with regards to investment advice because there are there are things that are safe topics and i'll give you a sneak peek on that uh one of the big ones is if the stuff is and when i say stuff i mean the quote unquote investments or the stuff you're talking about is within federally insured products you have a lot more protection. So things related to advice related to checking accounts, advice related to savings accounts and other things along those lines, your protections are a lot higher simply because of the fact that the federal government is ensuring the protection of those accounts. However, when we start moving into paying off student loans, because the student loan system has its own set of laws and is very complex, now we're starting to tiptoe toward the minefield. And I'm not saying that you have definitely stepped into the minefield, but you just want to be cognizant of the fact that the advice that I'm giving might have implications that I might not understand what it is. And when I say implications, both for the client, but also for yourself as a coach. And we want to be wary of that, or we want to be aware of that, I should say, not wary, but aware of that. Cool. Um, now that I am sitting next to a plug 
on the ground um, on a wall. I don't have the notes up in front of me. I feel like we've made our pretty close mm -hmm. down to the bottom, but I just want to see what we have that we still want to uh, be able to cover. So the last one is investment, investment advice and the Investment Advisors Act. And we'll do, a, we'll do a quick overview of the act right now, but really what I want to focus on is a list of punishments right now, because we're going to go into deep dive on the Investment Advisors Act in the next few sessions. And so the quick overview of the act is in the 1940s, Congress enacted the Investment Advisors Act, which basically said if you're going to give advice on investments, you have to be registered as a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Um, we won't go into more detail than that, but just that's the legal framework of the investment advice. Within the act, here is the list of punishments. Uh, so the first one is the SEC, without going to any court or anyone else, can just decide that they're going to fine you $10,000 or and or five years in prison for giving investment advice when you're not licensed. So that's just, that's layer one. The SEC just decides they don't like you and hits you with it. Um, the SEC also has the ability to, as the SEC being the plaintiff, take you to court. And in that, the, the damages range, the potential liability ranges from $5,000 up to $100,000 for an individual or $50,000 up to $500,000 as a uh, non-natural person. A non-natural person would be an LLC, a corporation, any of those types of things. Got it. So the range really is $5,000 to $500,000, but that would be a judge saying they're gonna fine you for this because the SEC took you to court. And then we have layer three. And layer three is your client, or their family, their children, anyone who had an interest in the client's money sues you civilly for it. And so those are our three potential areas of liability that come out of the Investment Advisors Act. I don't want any of those, so I'm glad that we're talking about what that means. <laughs> yeah, yeah, generally all, all of those are bad. None of those are, you. they're gonna punish you by putting you in Disneyland for a week. Right. Oh God! If only, if only they would be like yeah. invest, invest everywhere. Do it now. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, so let's talk about what could cause those punishments to trigger. And and really, the most likely scenario that you're going to get hit by the SEC or by the client is because a client complains. And the first way that's the most obvious way is that the market crashes. Right? The client has a couple hundred thousand dollars, they follow your advice, the market crashes, and now we're gonna assume that your advice was absolutely perfect. Just because your advice was absolutely perfect does not mean that you're not gonna get into trouble because of the fact that you gave that advice illegally, and so the SEC and the client could come after yep. you. Um, and so you might give absolutely perfect advice, nothing's wrong with it, and yet, you are still having legal problems because of it. Uh, the second way that you could do it is, and there's like thousands of permutations of this. I'm just going to give three of them that immediately pop to mind. So the second way is the client gets sued and their assets are seized in the lawsuit. 
And the reason why the assets were seized in the lawsuit was because you gave advice to uh, roll the client's money out of a 401k into an IRA without realizing that that changed the legal nature of the funds in the account. And so it made it more open to being seized in a lawsuit. And you may give, you may, it may have been good advice because the 401k was extremely high cost. They had horrible options, nothing but actively managed mutual funds with 4% expense ratios. I mean, literally it's like the worst 401k you've ever seen and anyone's ever right. seen. So it was good advice, but then the client loses the money in a lawsuit. Well, but for your advice, that money might not have been subject to the lawsuit. And as a result, you've got a problem. Got uh, number three, the assets were transferred to a person other than who the client originally wanted. So going back to that estate law thing, right? You gave advice, the assets went to someone other than what the client originally wanted. Now the client's dead, so the client's not gonna sue you, but the person who is named in the will probably would. And so these are just scenarios that are actually common. And it's not a matter of the SEC is going to be out there looking for it. It's a matter of you just got unlucky, someone complained, and now the SEC found you. Got it. Okay. And yeah. that ties into, and so all three of those punishments could apply for each of those potentially? Yes. Okay. Because you gave advice, which was investment advice. And we're going to learn in the next episode. Um, well, actually, no, it's in two episodes. What all is included in investment advice. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that'll be something good where um, it can either be in the comments of this video or when we start posting about the future. Um, actually, I would say, as you're watching this video or watching it on a replay, put those questions in there as you're starting to think of some things that... Um, questions that pop up related to what we're talking about, even in future episodes, put them down in the comments so that we can compile them and put them together and make sure that we answer them on future lives. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Financial Coaches Network podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are released. Uh, it also helps iTunes and everything else know that you liked it and suggest it to other people. And if you can think of one person, a financial coach or someone aspiring to be, who would connect with what we talked about today, share it with them as well. If you're ready to take the next step and build your successful financial coaching business, FCN has turnkey resources to help you get clients, work with clients effectively, and run your business efficiently. Head to Financial Coaches Network backslash start here or Financial Coaches Network backslash stall if you're Sean Connery. Thank you again for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Financial Coaches Network podcast.